my name's Alana. I'm the communications and equipping director here at Cornerstone. This is Graham. Hey, my name is Graham Spruill. I and the salt company director here at Cornerstone. <laughs> he had to think about his job for a second. What do I do What here? do I do here? Um, and we're really, really grateful that you guys are here. If you have never been to a crash course before, here's the gist. The gist is that we're about to go into a fire hydrant of information for the next two hours. You buckle up and get ready. And just feel free to come and go use the space as you please. We're not going to have any formal breaks because, honestly, we don't have time for that. So you just feel free to get up. If you need to go to the restroom, get another drink, get another snack, you do what you need to do. Um, and we're just going to keep going. And on um, your note sheet that you maybe got whenever you came in, you'll see that there's a QR code. And so that's the place where you can find all of the Crash Course recordings, this one and the other one. So know that if you're like not absorbing everything that we talk about tonight, you can go back slowly and listen and like swallow the information that we're going to talk about. So um, I always like to point that out. So we are going to come in and just get started. Again, like I mentioned, we're just really honored and grateful that you're here tonight. Um, this is just, it's a really important topic, what Graham and I are going to be talking about tonight. It's important within the life of the church, like at large, but it's also just a really important topic in our culture. People are talking about it. We've heard this word deconstruction um, floating around. I'm sure that everyone in this room has heard it before. And so um, maybe you're here for a number of reasons. Maybe one of those reasons is you've heard that word floating around and you're like, what does that mean? It sounds kind of bad and scary and wrong, question mark. Um, and so maybe you're just coming in and wanting to learn more about it. Maybe... Um, you've, maybe you've had a conversation with a friend or a loved one who has recently told you, I'm in the process of deconstructing, and you're like, I'm worried. Like, what does that mean for them? Does that mean that they're not a Christian anymore? Does that mean that they're not going to be a Christian anymore? Um, what, what would it look like for me to come alongside of them and walk with them in that? What's like, what would be helpful? What would be unhelpful? Um, and maybe if we're really honest, maybe some of you in the room are deconstructing. Maybe you've kind of had some some things going on in your life and you're like, I'm kind of at this place where I think I need to deconstruct my faith and I want to hear from you guys what you have to say about it and how that might shape how I do it. Um, so there, there's a number of reasons why you might be in here and, and I just want to take a second really quick and actually have you think, like ask that question to yourself, why am I here? and answer that question, right? maybe just write a word or a phrase or a sentence at the top of wherever you're taking notes, answer that question, why are you here? Take a second and write it down. As you're writing that down, if you feel comfortable with maybe the person next to you or the table, go ahead and share some of those reasons. Why are you here? Maybe you share a word or a phrase, um, just a little quick snippet to your neighbor of answering that question, why are you here? You can go ahead and share that as you finish writing. All right, I'm going to interrupt you. And Graham and I are going to insert ourselves at your table. Like if, if we were sitting at your table and you were to ask us, why are you here? One, it's because we're teaching this crash course. But beyond that, here, here's what we would say. We would give you three main reasons of why we're here, why we pick this topic, why we're talking about this particular subject tonight. Reason number one, deconstruction isn't a new thing. It's just a trendy thing. Right now, deconstruction is not a new thing. It's a trendy thing. And it's, when I was thinking about it, it's kind of like kale. 
Kale is a 2,000-year-old vegetable, and all of a sudden, 15 years ago, this like really savvy PR firm and some very influential celebrities who had cooking blogs and social media like repackaged and rebranded kale to be like the poster vegetable for all things health, wellness, detox, superfood, et cetera, galore, right? And and when I think about that, like kale isn't a new thing, it's just this repackaged and rebranded trendy thing um, that's often, I think, similar to how deconstruction is. Deconstruction isn't a new thing, it's actually quite old. Graham's gonna talk about that here in a little bit. Um, but I think at least in the West, it, this idea of deconstruction has been repackaged and rebranded in a way that like, inserts itself into this age of individualism, this age of authenticity, of being our true selves in such a way that it's very enticing. It's very popular because it also has a very savvy PR firm called technology, called social media. And, and so I think that's reason number one. Deconstruction isn't old, it's just trendy. I think related to that, um, reason number two, it's important to talk about deconstruction because culture is talking about deconstruction. I think one of the responsibilities that we have as the church is to engage and assess and evaluate culture. What, what are we hearing? What are we noticing? What are we listening to? What information are we taking in? Because oftentimes that helps to answer the question, like what is culture searching for? What is culture longing for? What, what is culture defining as good and flourishing and truth? What, what are the Idols. Like what, as we're engaging in culture, it's important for us as a church to notice and to respond and to say, what, what is it that the gospel says? What is it that the Bible says is true and good, right, long? Idol. Like this is no different than what Paul does when he arrives to Athens in Acts 17. He, he's observing the city. He's immersing himself in the city. And, and by his evaluation and assessment, he's speaking to the Athenians of what is good and what is false. So it's, that's another reason why we want to talk about deconstruction. Finally, we want to talk about deconstruction. Why we're here is to say that deconstruction isn't necessarily bad or wrong, but it does pose real dangers. And, and so as we're talking tonight, we, we want to spend some time talking about the real opportunities that deconstruction invites us to, but we also want to move forward very carefully and cautiously, being really aware of the dangers that it can possess. It, it's kind of like machinery or appliances, right? And, and the one that comes to my mind as I was prepping is a hairdryer. If you own a hairdryer, you'll notice that the tag like on the cord it has this image of a bathtub and a hairdryer and a big red X over them. And you are meant to infer from that that you should not use the hairdryer in a bathtub. Why? Because hairdryers are very helpful, but they are very horrible, harmful when they are mixed with water. Right? And, and so when we think about the ways that we use machinery and appliances, they can be very helpful when they're used correctly in the proper way, in the proper context. They can be very harmful, deadly, dangerous when they're misused in an improper context, right? Just like you would get electrocuted if you use a hairdryer in the bathtub. I don't recommend. You also have to wonder who did it? Like, why does, the, why does that warning exist? Side note. So, 
I, I think that one of the reasons why Graham and I are here this tonight is to talk about just the, the guardrails um, that we need to have as we, as we partake in deconstruction. We're actually going to see that there's a lot of good ways and good reasons to deconstruct, but we need to do it within the appropriate guardrails. Like as we're learning how to use this tool of deconstruction, we need to, use, we need to know how to use it well. We need to know how to use it wisely. What is it for? What is it not for? Um, and, and I want you to notice how close the word deconstruction is to the word destruction. It, it, like I, just, I think it's such a good, helpful reminder right there in the word of how important it is to use this tool wisely um, because it does pose a very real danger and threat to destroying, to obliterating and shattering your faith. Like you have a very real danger to head down this road of deconstruction in such a way where it leads to unbelief, apostasy, heresy. Like it can lead to destruction. And, and so as we think about this journey of deconstruction, how to do it well, I, I think that this exhortation and admonition from Hebrews is really timely. It's really helpful when we think about this. Listen to what Hebrews 2.1 says. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Did you notice that? We must pay the most careful attention so that we don't drift away. It's not this abrupt, sharp, right turn that jolts us awake. It's a drift. It's like when you enter into the ocean and you're just kind of floating around and the waves just carry you along and all of a sudden you turn around and you're like, I am so far from where I got in. It's subtle. It's not, it's not necessarily going to awaken you to the reality unless you are paying careful attention. So to lay our cards out on the table, we specifically titled this crash course Reconstructing a Deconstructed Faith because the title assumes that there is a good deconstruction. And, and the good kind of deconstruction that takes place as, as we're kind of working out our faith and our salvation within this core Christian doctrine um, can actually lead us to a very good place, which is reconstruction. Faith hasn't been lost, it's actually been strengthened, it's been bolstered, it's been, it's been fortified in a way that actually is better than the thing that you had before you went down the process. Um, and so I, I think that that's our hope for tonight, is to give you guides, to give you guardrails of how to go about this deconstruction journey. Um, that's our hope for tonight. So we want to start with a map to kind of show you the lay of the land. We're going to use deconstruction as kind of this journey that we're going on. And, and I want to start with the first question of, why does somebody deconstruct in the first place? Like, why why would someone find themselves in a place, Graham is losing markers, um, not losing marbles, but markers. Um, so it's how, like, how does a person even get there in the first place where they're faced with this, like, interest of, I, I wonder if I need to deconstruct. Like, how does someone get there? I like how Tim Keller puts it. Here's what Tim Keller says. He explains it this way. Deconstruction happens when your current faith is unable to be held as it is in the face of some new reality. Some new reality comes along that shakes you. Your faith doesn't have an answer to explain it or to help you. Instead, it makes you question everything. The hope is that you can untangle the wrong beliefs that created the crisis, whether they're from cultural ideologies or things that are caught more than taught from the core beliefs. So we have lived in the world for more than a minute, and we can already think through a thousand different scenarios where we have been faced with a crisis. 
There's all sorts of crises that our faith is confronted with on a daily basis. And, and there's times when we are confronted with a crisis in such a way that we actually don't know how to view and respond and engage with the crisis in light of what we believe and know about the gospel, about the Lord. And, and it creates this moment that Graham and I are going to call attention. Okay? So, this tension, it's the doubt, it's the question, it's the crisis, it's the problem that your current beliefs cannot answer, they cannot resolve. And so this tension puts you on this path of deconstruction, right? The deconstruction is the process of reconciling that tension. And, and we're using the term reconcile very specifically. We didn't say resolve. Oftentimes, reconciling is when you have two opposing things that you're having to bring together and hold at the same time. You're uniting two things that are in opposition to each other and creating a world in which they can live together, right? And so deconstruction is this process of reconciling tension. And, and when we think about deconstruction, this process, I want us to like underline the fact that deconstruction is a strategy, it's a tool. It's, it's in and of itself, it is not the destination. It's not the end, it's the means. And so when we think about deconstruction being a strategy, we need to learn like what, what options like might I face in this fork in the road when I'm faced with this tension. When I'm going through some version of deconstruction, what might it look like? Path number one, the destination is denial, okay? Denial. There's ignorance, there's suppression. It's this con it's a phrase I, I like to say it as faith avoiding understanding. It's like you're faced with this crisis, you don't, your faith doesn't have an answer for it, and instead of moving toward it to find a solution, to find some sort of reconciliation, I, I'm too scared of where that might go, so I'm just going to pretend like it's not a problem. We're, like, we're sweeping these tensions, these crisis points under the rug, right? There's an ignorance, there's avoidance, there's a suppression. And, and really at the bottom of it, you guys, I think that denial, that like path of almost avoiding deconstruction because of fear of what might I find on the other side? Like what if I tumble into destruction on accident? Um, I, I think it's a missed opportunity to mature our faith. I wonder if it's similar to like what Peter says in 1 Peter 2.2. 2. He says, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. These, these tension points, these crisis points in our faith actually present an opportunity not for us to, to shy away out of fear, but actually to grow up in our faith and to wrestle through these points of crisis to say, God, how might I reconcile this? Like, how, what might you be teaching me in expanding what I know of you to be true to let this live here too, Right? And, and so I think it's this, it's this critical balance of we are called to have a childlike faith, right? Jesus welcomes the children. He says, such is the kingdom belonging to these. And yet God doesn't call us to have a childish faith. And so there's a real opportunity in this path of denial where we're fearful, we're avoiding, we're suppressing, we're denying that tension even exists to say, what, what, might, God might, what might God be inviting me to in this mature, maturation process of my faith, okay? Path two, total opposite, destruction, okay? So this destination of destruction, right? Where, where deconstruction can lead a person is heresy, unbelief, apostasy, like a total walking away from the Christian faith. If 
Denial is faith avoiding understanding. The, the person on this destination of destruction is understanding seeking faith. Understanding seeking faith. This path leads to a total change of beliefs, right? In an effort to sift through and untangle, um, we begin to make theological accommodations. That word is key, theological accommodations. They, they start, it's not so much a matter of false beliefs turning into embracing more true beliefs. It's beyond that. It's tampering and adjusting like these secondary issues that we're going to see are totally within bounds of deconstructing. But we're doing it in such a way that it's not protecting the core, it's actually exposing the core and making everything that you believe vulnerable and susceptible to deconstruction. And that is so harmful because when nothing is protected, everything is destroyed. When nothing is protected, everything is destroyed. So perhaps you're familiar with the expression, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Have you heard this? Okay. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Here's what it means. It means that when you're tossing something out that's worthless, you're encouraged to hold on to the thing that's most valuable, right? Water can be replaced. It's probably cold. You need to fill up your bathtub again, right? As you're tossing something that's worthless like bathwater, don't throw out the thing that's valuable with it. Hold tightly to the baby, right? Protect the baby as you're tossing out the thing that isn't valuable, and, and so when we have a crisis of faith of any kind, when we experience inexplicable tragedy, when we are victims of abuse or we become aware of abuse, when we have some sort of like crisis with scripture where it's like, well, how can this be true of God and this be true of God? Like whatever the crisis is, we have to be so careful to not demolish everything, to call everything into question as we're trying to, to process through and sift through this tension, right? We have to hold tightly, carefully, vigilantly to the baby, the thing that is valuable as we are working our way around and tossing out the things that are not valuable, the bathwater, Okay. Important note, you don't destroy your faith by asking questions. You don't destroy your faith by doubting. You don't destroy your faith by experiencing tensions and crisis. That's not the thing that destroys your faith. That's not the thing that leads you down the road to destruction. You destroy your faith by accommodation, by protecting nothing, by tossing the baby out with the bathwater, right? And, and so oftentimes what this comes out to is you believe nothing, you believe something that's culturally accommodating, like you begin to compromise the things that are core and slowly but surely the, the valuable thing gets tossed out and compromised and changed like the bathwater. Pay attention to what the New Testament writers caution us with. I think it's so important. Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and dece deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. Think about what Jude 1.3 says. Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and to urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Right? This is holding what is most precious as we are working our way around this deconstruction process. Okay? So what, what is the path forward? Path three, this destination of reconstruction, rebuilding, renovating our faith. This is faith-seeking understanding. It's not understanding so that I may, be may believe. It's not avoiding understanding because I, I don't know what I might find, but it's actually saying I want to have a faith that seeks to understand. 
I, I like how um, McDowell and Marriott describe this um, in their book, Set Adrift, which is out th back there with the resources. It says, this path is for those trying to determine the way of Jesus, not if Jesus is the way. Right? Do you, do you see that? Jesus is the way, is the core. The way of Jesus. How, how would Jesus act and live? And like, that's, that's the thing that we're working around. And, and so I think Trevin Wax, when he was here a couple weekends ago, he helped me to understand this like form of deconstruction that leads to reconstruction. Um, and, and the word that he used that was really helpful for me was disentanglement. Disentanglement. And, and what he meant by that is disentanglement is like this careful preservation of the essence while you're discarding or removing the things that are erroneous or extraneous. Right? You're holding tightly to the thing that's precious while you're carving and chipping away at all the things that you're realizing, wait, not that, not that, not that. And, and it made me think about when I was little, I had this necklace that I loved so much. The chain was like really dainty and thin and it would get horribly knotted up when it wasn't being worn. And so many days I would like run down the stairs with my like knotted up necklace and I would run to my mom and like ask her to untangle it and like the look in her eye of like, dear God, I want to throw this thing away. Um, because sometimes, you know, the knots would take her a couple minutes to untangle. Sometimes it would take her a couple hours. Sometimes it would take her a couple days. Um, but there was this like careful persistence, this diligence that my mom had as she's untangling the knots. I mean, so often, God bless my mom, she just wanted to get pliers and just cut the thing. Like she just wanted it to get undone. But there was this careful precision, this care like cautiousness as she's untangling it. And I think that is such a good picture of what we're talking about. Healthy deconstruction that leads to reconstruction is this persistence of I'm going to hold tightly to the thing that is most precious as I am working these knots out in such a way that actually preserves the whole. It actually makes it better than it was before. And, and so that's like, that's the picture. So as we get into the history, right, because deconstruction, it's not as old as kale, but it's close. Um, Graham's going to talk about that in a second. I want to leave you with this passage from scripture. I think it's so fitting for what we're talking about tonight. Matthew 7, 13 through 14 says this, enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. I, I think that passage applies to what we're talking about tonight. That as we're considering these possible pathways to go down deconstruction, the path to destruction is very popular and is very wide. There are many hashtag exvangelicals who will applaud you and congratulate you and celebrate you for deconstructing so that you are no longer oppressed by religious constructs and you know, like being hurt. Like you will be celebrated for breaking free from the thing that is actually most precious. And, and so there is a smaller, narrower path that we want to show you, that we want to invite you to, to deconstruct in a way that doesn't lead you to harm, but actually leads you to flourishing with a faith that is maybe even stronger and more true to the gospel and to the Christian faith once delivered for all the saints than before. So Graham... Where yes. did deconstruction come from? Great start. Uh, so we kind of know the lay of the land. We know a little bit of our definitions about how are we using the term deconstruction, where are we kind of headed for the night. I want to zoom out by first reading a quote from a guy named Jacques Derrida, who is known as the father of deconstruction. 
He was a French philosopher in the 1900s, and he's, he's one of the most famous French philosophers who has the, the title of, of father of deconstruction because his ideas focused on the nature, power, and mystery of language. And I want to start by quoting Derrida's most famous quote because I think it gives us a little bit of a picture of where this concept of deconstruction finds its uh, academic origins. Okay, so I'll read a quote for us. Derrida's most famous quote, it says, if reading must not be content with doubling the text, it cannot legitimately transgress the text towards something other than it, toward a referent, that is a reality that is metaphysical, historical, psychobiographical, etc., or toward a signified outside the text whose content could take place, could have taken place outside of language, that is to say, in the sense that we give here to that word outside of writing in general. That is why the methodological considerations that we risk applying here to an example are closely dependent on general propositions we have elaborated above as regards the ap- the, to the absence of the referent or the transcendental signified. There is nothing outside the text. I, I understand everything I that you just said. every single person in here to understand. You got it? We're good? Ready to rock and roll? We, we, we know. It's crystal. We know what Jacques Derrida is talking about. Heck no. Nobody has any idea what Jacques Derrida just said, unless you have like a political philosophy major or you have written a dissertation on Jacques Derrida. And so why am I starting there? Why do I start with that quote in specific? Because somehow in the conniving deception of Satan, deconstruction, which began in the mouth of a French philosopher named Jacques Derrida, has moved from highly intellectual philosophical jargon and made its way comfortably in our churches, in our connection groups, in our families, in our living rooms, in our siblings, in ourselves, moving people towards rejection of the Christian faith, all while calling it deconstruction. And so the simple question is, how the heck did we get there? How did we get from the the highly philosophical intellectual jargon of Jacques Derrida to we're all in a room doing a crash course called Reconstructing a Deconstructed Faith, and we all know what that means inside of a a religious context. How do we get there? And before I answer that question, I want to just point out two observations. Two observations about deconstruction's move from niche philosophy to commonplace conversation that I think are just helpful in our pursuit to, to follow Jesus faithfully in 2024. Number one, first observation is Satan deceives over decades, not days. As Alana has already mentioned, apostasy is not new. If you read the early documents of the Christian faith in the New Testament, if you read Paul in 1 Timothy 1.19, for example, there have been Hymenaeuses and Alexanders who have made shipwreck of their faith since literal day one. Paul, uh, Demas, you, you can find those, those names, those friends of uh, Christians in the, in the early church who they were mourning over and grieving over as, they, as those people walked out of the doors of of those gatherings. And so Satan has been prowling around like a lion, seeking whom he may devour since day one, and is going to continue to try to do that until the very end. So apostasy is not new. However, dressing up apostasy in this process called deconstruction and then celebrating it as the ultimate expression of, of spiritual freedom and self-enlightenment, uh, that, that is a little new. And so Satan deceives over decades, not days. He's got the same goal, prowling around like a lion, seeking whom he may devour, just using a, a different tool. He's just making it look more attractive by calling it deconstruction in 2024. That's the first observation. 
The second observation is that roots in the university have fruits in the culture. Cultural trends are not created in a vacuum. They don't just happen overnight. Cultural trends, like a good cup of coffee, brew. They brew over time. They don't move from intellectual jargon to mainstream in just one night. So where do they start? They start in major learning centers and universities, which just as like a side note, I mean, if that doesn't fire us up about Salt Company, Salt Network, what we do, man, I don't know what does. Because we need godly, thoughtful Christian thinkers, leaders, students, pastors to be engaging, critiquing, and redeeming some of these ideas on the front lines right now uh, that, that may not be shaping the ideas that are shaping our current generation, but are on the front lines shaping the ideas that will shape future generations 20, 30, 40, 50, 100, 100 years from now. So university ministry is strategic and it matters. Satan deceives over decades, not days, and roots in the university have fruits in the culture. Deconstruction moving from intellectual jargon to mainstream experience doesn't just happen overnight. It takes time. It's a long, it's a long process. And I started here because I think it's helpful for us to try and understand some of the cultural currents that, that go under and have been developing that have taken deconstruction from the ivory tower to our front porch. And at the start of this, even as Alana kind of already did, I, I want to just acknowledge that for, for most of us, I would assume, or many of us in this room, this isn't just an intellectual conversation to understand. This is personal for, for many of us. This, this is not uh, just trying to understand an idea. It's, it, there, there are names and faces that come with this conversation. Like, you are in this room because maybe you are in the process of, of some sort of deconstructive process or uh, coming out of one or walking into one and you're, you're looking for some help and hope or you're walking alongside people who are in the middle of, one, middle of, of some sort of process like that and you're trying to, to be a helpful, uh, empathetic and challenging voice and, and trying to walk with people well. And this is, pers- even for me, this is personal for me as well. I went to Liberty University, uh, which is a, a college in Lynchburg, Virginia. It's the largest Christian university in the world. Liberty's uh, mission is to train champions for Christ. They've sent out, you know, thousands of missionaries and pastors and successful business leaders and politicians for over 50 years. Liberty is also the birthplace of Jerry Falwell's Moral Majority, which is one of the most influential faith movements toward political activism expressing itself in uh, right-wing conservative politics. Liberty is also where Jerry Falwell Jr. exhibited patterns of not stewarding his power and influence well, lacking integrity in his personal life, and uh, found to be duplicitous in certain behavior. Now, some people, when I say the word liberty, they hear it and celebrate it. Some people hear it and they scoff at it. And I know it's a flawed place. I I went there and, and loved my experience at liberty, was deeply formed by godly men and women there. But I'm not here to have a conversation about what you think liberty's political involvement should be or what you think about Jerry Falwell Jr.'s scandals. What I am here to say is that because of some of those things, mixed with the shifting cultural climate over the last couple of years that we're going to talk about, many of my peers and friends who I would have said, that person's going to be an elder in a church, that person's going to follow Jesus for the long haul. If you want to see, if you want to look, look at a life of somebody who is committed, sold out, passionately following Jesus, look at that person. Many of those people have completely deconstructed from their faith and either moved to a historically unorthodox pseudo version of Christianity or completely rejected and abandoned the Christian faith in total. And so for me, I, I'm 
with you, having uh, personally wrestled through some deconstruction process, but this topic has names and faces with it. It's not just an idea that we're trying to wrestle to the ground to to understand better. And I know that's that's true of, of many of you here. So how did we get here? How did we get to this place? To answer that question, I want us to see two important cultural shifts that have taken place over the last couple of decades. A a shift in the culture and a shift in the self. The shift in the culture is the shift from modernism to postmodernism. And then the shift in the self is a shift towards expressive individualism. Okay, so to understand that the shift in the culture from modernism to postmodernism, I want to talk about a time period of, uh, of, two, of these two specific cultural moments, a tool birthed out of each of these specific cultural moments, and then the attitude, or you could say outcome or whatever, the attitude of, of the people, the attitude that the people who lived during these periods embodied as they lived in or after those cultural moments. So let's talk about the time of modernism. So modernism is, think, late 1600s to 1950 or so. Modernism, you can read, is synonymous uh, with the, the Enlightenment, the, the period of the Enlightenment. This is the time in human history where, as Andrew Wilson in his book, Remaking the World, uh, talks about how influential thinkers uh, sought to free the world from the immaturity of childhood in which authority and tradition define the scope of knowledge and into a more advanced, mature, and independent state in which human beings could finally think for themselves. The Enlightenment is a, it was a time period of waking up to reality in a new way. The way that, that Wilson goes on to say is that modernism believed that the light of knowledge was banishing the darkness of the Middle Ages. Humanity was coming of age and beginning to think for itself. So modernism, or the Enlightenment, then births its primary tool that it, it uh, relies, on, relies upon, develops, gives to humanity. That tool is science. So this era was marked by a confidence in the scientific method to answer any and all questions about the nature of life and existence. Like, kind of, you, you could hear the question asked of, of why do you need any other authority to tell you how to think about life, how to, how to think about God, how to think about reality, when you could just kind of explain everything under the, the lens of a microscope. And that is, that's a caricature, but just to simply kind of broad brush swath uh, understand these time periods. And in response to, to that time, time frame and that tool, the attitude that these people embodied during this time frame, we could describe it as optimistic reasoning. Like we've, we've got science, we've got reason, therefore we've got all of the answers to all of the questions within the tools of our own making, of ourselves. Modernism sounds great, right? It's like, wow, that sounds like, a, you know, they, they figured everything out. Well, modernism gets followed up by a time known as postmodernism. Think 1950 to the, to the present. And postmodernism says to modernism, you know, after slavery and a couple world wars and some other terrible things done at the hands of perfectly reasonable people, I'm not so sure of all of the optimistic reasoning that you speak of. In fact, I'm quite skeptical of it, postmodernism says to modernism. Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay say this, that at the heart of the postmodern turn is a reaction to and rejection of modernism. According to Enlightenment thinking, objective reality can be known through more or less reliable methods. Think 
science. If we can put it under the microscope, we can see it, see its ultimate reality. Postmodernism, on the other hand, shows a radical skepticism about whether objective knowledge or truth is obtainable and a belief that society is formed of systems of power and hierarchies which decide what can be known and how. And so out of this period, you have uh, thinkers like Jacques Derrida, like Jean-Francois Lyotard, like Michel Foucault, who are the philosophical heavy hitters for the philosophy surrounding postmodernism. And they, they start making philosophical schools of thought to give language to some of these postmodern ideas. One of those, uh, you know, thought leaders we read just a moment above, it is super philosophically dense uh, stuff. But what happens is it's, it's the thinkers that follow the, the postmodern uh, thinkers like Leotard, Derrida, all these other people, that take that philosophical jargon and they uh, create a new tool to give to the ground, basically. How does it get to the ground? Through this tool called theory. So if, if science was the tool of modernism that answered all the questions about life and reality, theory is the tool of postmodernism that, that raises questions about those answers. That says, are you sure we, we saw that right? Are you sure that's really how this goes? Theory seeks to say, wait, is what we really discovered an accurate depiction of reality, or is it just a perception of reality that can be co-opted for oppressive uses by the white male cisgender power brokers? So you have the rise of uh, these different theories, such as post-colonial theory, critical race theory, queer theory, etc., where the tool functions not so much as a thing that you use with your hands, like a microscope in science, but as a pair of glasses you look through with your, with your eyes. Theory is a lens in which you critically view and evaluate past, present, and future events to, to understand life and culture. And when, postmodern, when postmodernism uses the tool of theory, it, it really is kind of like a sledgehammer. Even though it may, maybe some things that they, they see some things clearly, f the, what, what you find with the, with the tool of, of theory is they're, they're finding that, man, the, the problem of how oppressive people and systems have held all the power in life and culture, and that's just the nature of the game. And so the, the attitude embodied by postmodern people, as you can imagine, is what we could call pessimistic suspicion. Radical, radical skepticism about anything but especially anything that smells of absolutes, truth, authority, whatever. Postmodernism scoffs at that. And so postmodernism reacts to modernism, but at the end of the day, can't help but be influenced by it. It's like the, the kid who maybe grows up to hate their mom or dad, but they stick the, you know, the trash can underneath the sink just like mom did. So, so there's this reaction to, from, from postmodernism to modernism, but, but mo postmodernism can't help but be influenced. In what way? Particularly in the high view of the human self, which is where we now enter into that second cultural shift that is part of the undercurrent of how the philosophical jargon of deconstruction lands up on our doorstep, which is a shift in the self into expressive individualism. And I'm actually not going to spend a ton of time here because I'd, I would encourage you to go to the Equip uh, Course podcast and listen to Trevin Wax talk about this. Uh, it does a whole session on, on it as a challenge facing the Western church. But just as a summary, Trevin Wax defines expressive individualism as the look-in approach to life. 
to say that the purpose and meaning of your life is found when you look inside yourself first to define yourself by discovering your deepest desires. So let's bring these two currents together. If you, if you bring the optimistic self-obsession of modernism and you meld that with the pessimistic suspicion of postmodernism, then you find the era of the expressive individual whose ultimate authority is nowhere to be found except in the mirror. And if you begin to question that, for, I mean, for all of us, we drift towards this way. It's like, who the heck do you think you are? Things as small as, you know, cutting, cutting somebody off in traffic, but, or, or as big as, what do you believe about the nature of, of life and reality? Anybody who says anything different can be seen as oppressive, outdated, whatever. What does all this have to do with deconstruction? Remember the question that we're asking. How did we get here? How did the roots of Derrida in the university grow fruits at the doorstep of our churches, families, souls, whatever it might be? The answer is that, part of the answer is that, that the cultural, these, the result of these cultural shifts has created a spiritual climate. A spiritual climate that we'll call a climate that values leaving over honoring. A.J. Swoboda in his book After Doubt talks about this as a as a really helpful paradigm that I think we'll, we'll kind of jump off on as we begin to talk about each of these three destinations. But Swoboda talks about how all of us in this room, we walk a thin line tension in our lives, not just with areas of religion or, or what we believe about Jesus, but we, in this context, what we believe about Jesus, like we, we walk this tension of leaving your past and becoming your own person and honoring your past and loving where you came from. And rather than try to summarize his thoughts, I think Swoboda does a great job. Just I'm just going to read kind of a, a lengthy quote because I think it's super helpful with this concept of leaving and honoring. Swoboda says, This shift from honor radically changes the way, in the, West, the way many in the West relate to the quote-unquote old beliefs of Christianity. Whereas honor cultures guard, protect, and pass along deeply held beliefs, leaving cultures prioritize breaking from past dogmas. New ideas, it's implied, are more likely to be true. Being a quote-unquote evolved person means breaking with these past superstitions. Being post-anything is now a sign of arrival and maturity. Post-modern, post-Christian, post-enlightenment, post-liberal, post-conservative, and post-political. Being post-something is powerful and intoxicating. We've been there. We've left. We've transcended, enjoying the objective and neutral view from the top. We caress our own ego by calling this being on the right side of history. Now, before we begin to sound like we're demonizing the, the, the spiritual climate that we're in, A.J. Swoboda goes on to clarify. He says, culture, it seems, are always tempted to reject this tension and emphasize either honoring or leaving. The biblical world was an honor world. The Western world is a leaving world. In the honor society of Jesus' time, culture and religion preserved and protected the past at all costs. When it came to, to it, tradition and honor were held even above the prophet's message. The default structure of society was to protect, honor, and preserve the past. He says, Western culture has swung to the opposite extreme. The contemporary Western world is a leaving culture that considers it liberating to set aside the past and tradition. Things are now backward. And here's the most important line that he says. The hometown in the time of Jesus gave no honor to the prophet. In our time, a prophet gives no honor to their hometown. This is the framework of our deconstruction age. Like Alana mentioned at the very beginning of the map at the very, very start, the goal of tonight is, is to not say that the answer to leaving is honoring 
or that the answer to honoring is leaving, but the answer to both, rightly honoring and rightly leaving to be who Jesus wants us to be, is Jesus, is following him on the narrow pathway that leads to life. Jesus gives us the help and the hope that we need to both leave and become who God wants us to be, maybe clarifying some actual orthodox doctrine beliefs that, that were clouded by our own human tradition of growing up, but also honor the past of the beautiful and, and really difficult stories that we maybe have grown up with within the orthodox faith. So we're defining deconstruction, remember, as what? The process of reconciling tension. You will encounter tension in your life. You live longer than two seconds. Whether that is in your actual life, you engage with a level of suffering at such a, a painful level that it doesn't match what you perceive, you know, the, the, the good character of what you know to be true about God. Or it's something as small as like, wait, in this genealogy in Luke chapter 3, that name doesn't match with this genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. Does that mean the whole Bible's a sham? Does that mean I got to... You're going to encounter tension. The question is, what are you going to do with that tension? And so three destinations, we've already kind of outlined them. Alana's uh, going to talk about destination number one, which is denial. Yeah, so we're going to color them in, right? So we kind of gave each of the paths and the destinations some bones earlier, and now we want to put some meat on them. So I, I want to spend some time talking about the, the denial destination and earlier I, I said this of, and I don't necessarily want to prescribe it to be true, but I want to describe it because it's what I found to be true of my story. And in the time that I have journeyed on this pathway that led to denial, I found myself really scared to face my tensions. I, I found myself really fearful to be honest about my crisis and to into like kind of be afraid of asking the really hard questions because I wasn't sure what was going to happen. Um, part of my story, and I'm curious if if it's true of others who are finding themselves on the pathway toward denial and this tendency to um, have faith that avoids understanding, um, it is kind of a fundamentalist growing up, right? This um, this religious background that prioritizes legalism, that has a very strict, rigid, works-based, you know, black and white kind of faith. And, and I think that kind of growing up for me, mixed with my budding Enneagram One personality who loved to follow the rules, loved to be cooperative, aimed to please, like, and was quite frankly really good at being good. Like that was kind of this like perfect concoction um, for what my working theology was. Like my my life theology was saying that it wasn't so much that I thought that my works and my good behavior for God saved me. I, I wasn't trying to replace the cross. I was just trying to enhance it. I was trying to add to it. And, and, and I found myself like in this spiral of knowing that, you know, yes, I, I know the good news of Jesus. And, and that was communicated at the church that I had growing up. And yet the way that I was internalizing that and viewing the world was like, well, but it has to be that good works is what sustains me. It's what maintains my good standing with God. Um, and, and so I, you know, I knew the gospel, my church, in, in the best way that it could and did preach the gospel, and yet my life and the way that I operated and viewed the world was very much anti-gospel, right? And, and so it really wasn't until I got to college that I was faced with two different 
tension points, these two different crises that, that really challenged me, that I wrestled on this road, like leading to denial of, am I going to face these tension points? Am I going to acknowledge these crises or am I just going to suppress them because I don't really want to deal with this gray that is being thrown into my black and white theology. Um, that's, that's really what it boiled down to, was, was I willing to introduce gray into the color spectrum? And the, the two crisis points were totally different. Crisis point one um, was coming to this realization that I had been misreading the Bible my entire life. Growing up, you know, it was constantly, I was being asked the question, who are you? Like, where do you find yourself in this story? And, and to me, that was the way that I had been trained to read the Bible, was looking for me of be like the good characters, don't be like the bad characters. Um, and, and so my whole life growing up, I had just inserted myself into every page of scripture. And, and so I remember in college for the very first time being confronted with this reality that Jesus is on every page of scripture, that Jesus is the true and better fulfillment of all of the good characters, and he's the solution to all the bad characters. It, and it just rocked my world. It was like how, how has it been that for the last 15 years of my life, I I have been hearing this all wrong. Like it, it made me question, like, have I even read scripture rightly at all? That, that was my first crisis. My second crisis was totally different. Um, I faced in college just a major panic attack episode. I had, I grew up having anxiety, um, but in my senior year of college, it just, it culminated to a panic attack like I had never had before. And then a few years later that followed just a very like depressive episode that scared me. And, and I remember growing up, you know, the thing that we were always told was cast your anxieties on the Lord and don't be anxious about anything. Pray about everything. Rejoice. Give thanks. Like you're, you need to trust God more. You need to have more faith. Anxiety is a symptom that you're controlling and you're worried. Like, and so growing up, I just always felt the shame that man, I just, I, I, I'll never be able to conquer this sin of anxiety in my life because I'm just always worried. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, then like when it culminated into just like the depression episode years after I had graduated college, like I, I was afraid to, to be alone because I didn't know, like I, it wasn't like I was wanting to end my life, but I was also afraid with the fact that I was not wanting to be alive. And, and, I, and I just remember like coming to terms in this reality of like, wait a second, like what is going on here? And, and so the second, you know, the, the second crisis point um, landed me in a doctor's office where for the first time in my life, I'm not being told by somebody, hey, you need to pray more and trust God more and have more faith. For the very first time in my life, I'm being told by somebody, hey, I think you have a neurotransmitter in your brain that's not firing properly. And there's some medicine that can help that to help stabilize and regulate you. It's not going to remove your anxiety, but it's just going to help you not spiral out of control when you are anxious. And and I remember just being like, wait a second, what? Like, I, I was faced with a crisis of, is medicine a cop-out? Like, what, where does medicine fit into my understanding of Christianity? Where does medicine fit into my worldview of the gospel? I didn't have a place for it. 
And, and I was brought to such a potent crisis point that I had to, I couldn't, I couldn't keep suppressing it and pretending like it wasn't there because all the things that I had been sweeping under the rug for 18 years of my life, I was finally tripping over. That's what happens when we sweep things under the rug. The rug gets too lumpy and we trip over it. Um, and so in these two kind of spaces where I was finding myself with this invitation to deconstruct, not in a way that would lead to destruction, not in a way that was going to keep me on this path that I had been on of denial, but actually properly reconstructing. On one hand, what it meant was that I was having to deconstruct myself out of the story of scripture. Like I was having to pull myself, myself out of every page of scripture and saying, actually, it's not me on every page of scripture. It's Jesus on every page of scripture. I'm not the point. He's the point. I, I had to deconstruct the fact that what I bring to the table is sin and need, and what he brings to the, to the table is the solution and salvation, right? That it's actually not a matter of me looking more like the good guys and less like the bad guys, but actually that I'm a part of the problem and Jesus is the true and better solution that I need, right? And, and so, I mean, that led me to a stronger faith. That, that led me to a place where now when I read scripture, I'm not necessarily looking for me, I'm looking for him. On the other side, when I had to deconstruct and find a way of, does medicine fit into my faith? Like, is there a way where I can, I can yes, deal with anxiety that truly is something that I need to deal with in a spiritual sense, but also recognize that I might have a broken neurotransmitter that I didn't know about, you know? And it's like, well, if my car had a broken engine, I would take it to go get repaired. So what, what is the problem here? And the thing that I had to deconstruct and rebuild, reconstruct, was this reality that I had too small of a view of sin. Sin wasn't just the thing that's out there that makes the world broken. Sin is in me, and it makes me broken, all of me, right? It's not just a spiritual problem in me. It's a physical problem in me. It's why one day we're all going to die, because sin isn't just a spiritual problem, it's a physical problem, it's a mental problem. Like we, we have brokenness pervasive inside of us. And so who, who was I to think that my mind, my body was the, the one exception to where sin breaks and, and ruins things in our world? And, and so for me, I had to grapple with this reality of, oh, my vision of sin is too small. And what if maybe just maybe sin has broken my brain in, in such a way that neurotransmitters aren't firing properly? And so with humility, I get to receive this common grace of medicine and saying, okay, this isn't the solution to my problem. Jesus is the solution to my problem. But thanks be to God that every day when I take my medicine, I'm reminded of, wow, there's common grace for today. And there's a good news of eternity when all things will be made right as they should be when our neurotransmitters will fire as they should be, right? And so both of those, like tripping over this like faith avoiding understanding of like having to grapple with, like I, I was faced with a crisis that was too big I couldn't suppress anymore. That was my experience on this road of denial that wound me up. If, if I had stayed, it just, I wouldn't have dealt with, I wouldn't have grappled and expanded my view of who God was and what he could offer and invite me to. Um, and, and I just, I, my, my encouragement, if you're 
resonating with this path of denial where like you're, you're sensing like I'm ignoring some of these tension and crisis points in my life because I'm afraid. Like I'm, I'm afraid that they might break my faith, not strengthen my faith. My, my encouragement to you is to have the courage to face them. And, and I think that that's true of all of the paths that we're on is that no matter what path that we're on, the, the same reality is true. There isn't a crisis, there isn't a tension, there isn't a doubt that is neither surprising to the Lord nor offensive to him. Like we get to go to God with all of our doubt, with all of our fear, with all of our crisis, with all of our questions, and trust that the God that we are presenting those to is a kind and compassionate Father who will sit with us and by his spirit, show us and reveal himself to us in a true and better way, right? So we can, we can trust that that's who we are going to with our crisis and our tension points. We, we need not suppress because we have a God that invites that. So if that's denial, one, one destination. The next destination we're going to talk about is destruction. So biblically speaking, what we're calling destruction, what oftentimes modern day is calling the Deconstruction, the Bible calls apostasy or unbelief. So much of destruction is intimately connected with the cultural shifts that, that we talked about a little bit a little bit ago and that some of the spiritual climate of leaving as opposed to honoring. But to give some some time to this specifically, this pathway or this destination of destruction. Destruction, on the other hand, different from denial, is that somebody meets tension in the Bible or in their lives that they can't seem to reconcile with their former or their current view of God. And as a result of this, this tension becomes so profound that they, like Alana has said, throw the baby out with the bathwater, per se, and move to either a historically unorthodox pseudo version of Christianity or abandon Christianity in total. John Mark Comer, who's a pastor in Portland, and now I think he's in San Diego, he talks about how like if there's a good sort of deconstruction or leaving that we're going to talk about in a, in a second where we use scripture to critique the world's corruption of the church, destruction is the bad sort of deconstruction where people use the world to critique scripture, the world and its values to critique scripture's authority and value over and in the life of the church. It's like when, when the values of the Bible don't match the values of the culture and the culture has a compelling sway in the mind and heart of a person who meets this tension, the, the cultural sway tends to win every time because it feels and sounds attractive due to some of these modern, modern shifts that have happened. So a mod, just like a, to give you a, a picture of art that might demonstrate some of this uh, destruction that we talk about as the only option to the ambiguities of existence is the book series or the movies Dune. Anybody read? Anybody a science fiction nerd out here? What up, Jacob Boyd? Me and you, buddy. Just me and you. Hey, movie two comes out Friday. Uh, it's a. I, I would recommend it. It's a. It's a. It's a good book to read. A to like engage with some of this to see how it shows up in in art. But Dune is a deconstructionist paradise which, yes, is an oxymoron. That can't exist at all. Dune, not just, so there's like, right now, two movies coming out. The second movie's coming out on Friday, but there's six books in total that Frank Herbert, in the 60s, writes this book to, to show and chronicle kind of the messianic type of rise and fall of this dude named Paul Atreides. The first couple of books and movies, you're rooting like, okay, this is the, there's good and there's evil and everything's gonna be worked out. 
And as you get further and further into the story, what you find is that the Messiah that everybody wanted doesn't turn out to be, I'm not going to spoil it because if you're going to go see the movie on Friday, um, the Messiah doesn't turn out to be a Messiah. It's like the whole Messiah complex for a, a Frank Herbert world is a sham. Now contrast that with J.R.R. Tolkien and Lord of the Rings. These are two very different uh, worldview authors writing two very similar books in, in the same time frame, 1960s. And what's interesting is actually because they worked in such similar fields, fantasy, science fiction, people reached out to J.R.R. Tolkien to say, hey, what do you think about Dune? You know, what do you think about the new the new book, and this is just for free, it's kind of interesting. Uh, Tolkien responds by saying, it is impossible for an author still writing to be, f- uh, it's an impossible for an author still writing to be fair to another author working along the same lines. At least I find it so. In fact, I dislike Dune with some intensity, and in that unfortunate case, it is much the best and fairest to another author to keep silent and refuse to comment. So that's Tolkien's thoughts on Dune. You can decide for yourself what you think about it. Uh, I Personally, I'm in book four. I'm trying to finish the whole, the whole uh, you know, all the books, but I think it's fascinating to see what is the outcome of a type of world that that exists in this sort of deconstructionist paradigm. What sort of paradise, what sort of vision is able to be casted if de- if the destructionist point of view takes itself to the to the logical end? Now, here's some col- some common valid tension points that make people walk down a path towards destruction: hypocrisy and church leaders, right? Maybe showing itself in some sort of abuse. Like, who do these people think they are that they're gonna that I'm gonna get duped by their corrupt leadership? It's not gonna be me. Injustice from the institutional church, historically, maybe presently. Why does this church uh, think that that I'm gonna come up here? I'm, I'm gonna come here. I'm gonna show up to to their big buildings and their big services when it doesn't seem to be that they're caring for the poor and the marginalized in our community. Maybe it's past experience with judgmental legalism. People are saying, who, who do those people think they are to judge my, my life based on rules it seems that they made up? And as I say some of these things, some of us uh, in here might already be thinking like, well, well, okay, yes, that makes sense. We can give compassion. We can give empathy. But why can't they believe in the, believe in the truth of Christ in spite of the brokenness of Christians? Why can't we separate those two things? That might be a question that you're kind of thinking through. And I get that. But I think to understand the, the answer to that question, we need to talk about how those shifts in the culture and the shift in the self that we talked about a little bit earlier has actually made it significantly harder for our current uh, generation and climate to be able to do that, to separate the person and work of Jesus Christ, the propositional truths of the gospel, and the pain that they might have ex- experienced or seen in a church experience. It's, it's difficult. And so we, we've got to figure out how can we be compassionate for those people who have moved away, maybe quicker than people in the past, uh, towards this destructive pathway. Because the questions that people are asking regarding faith and belief have completely changed over the years. And when we as a church give answers that don't resonate with the actual questions that people are asking, destruction seems to be the only viable option. It's like, well, I tried, whatever. This, they're, not, they're not actually answering the questions that I'm asking. And what I don't mean by that is that we have to tell people what they want to hear. What I do mean by that is that we have to tell every generation the truth of Jesus contextualized in a way that that generation can most easily hear. We've got to be students of the culture to understand how can we share the life-changing and good news of Jesus in a way that, that resonates, that makes sense. And only the Holy Spirit can, can change lives. But are there 
barriers that we put up in trying to share the gospel because it's just landing on deaf ears. Let me illustrate this a little bit. In the past, the USA has predominantly and historically represented the guilt-innocence worldview paradigm. And what that means is that Americans historically have thought about God and religions in, ter- in, in religion in terms of uh, what is true and untrue. And in the past few years, because of the shift in the culture and the shift in the self, I believe the honor-shame worldview has actually begun to take a stronger hold and place in, in our society. And the honor-shame worldview holds that reputation and honor to oneself, to one's community, are the highest goods. And why this is important to this conversation is that people will make decisions in 2024 about God and religion, not in terms of what is true as the driving factor, but in terms of what is honorable and shameful to their most important group that they belong to. Because to this generation, it's more important to honor your truth as I honor my truth and they honor their truth than to really say, well, what is the truth? And the reason that I bring this up is because it, it, to show that many people will depart from the Christian faith and land in this destruction uh, pathway, not because they wrestled the propositional truths of the gospel about the historical person of Jesus and what he said and what that implies about our current life, not because they wrestled those to the ground and found them wanting, but more so because they found the Christian faith hurtful to them or the people that they loved and therefore shameful and worthy of rejection. Now, one response to that is to be frustrated and say, well, you just gotta, you just gotta think through that. You just need to separate the doctrine that, that, we're, you know, that, that Jesus espouses, like what, the truths about Jesus from the sinfulness of Christians, of Christian leaders or whatever might be the, the story of somebody. Sin, sinners are gonna sin, separate church from Christ, You can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's one way we can respond as believers who are trying to either deal with these things ourselves or walk with somebody. But I think it's important for us to do the extra work to understand why the baby was thrown out in the first place that can give you a compassionate lens to know that if I'm trying to have an is it true conversation and they're internalizing it as an is it shameful or honorable conversation, you are bound to communicate really, really beautiful, true gospel truths in a way that might land on some deaf ears because they're not thinking in the way that maybe people were thinking 20 years ago. They're they're not going to fall in the same ears. This, by the way, is the entire reason that Tim Keller wrote Making Sense of God 15 years, I think, after he wrote Reason for God. Reason for God is one of the most, uh, it was one of the best-selling apologetic books, a New York Times bestseller, that Tim Keller basically goes through all these different defeater beliefs of the Christian faith. And if you, to, to use this framework, reason for God is an is it true or false apologetic. Making sense of God is an is it shameful or honorable apologetic. And Keller went back and, and read through, you know, his reason for God. And as he continued to engage in different conversations in New York City, he began to say, you know what? While those are beautiful truths, I've got to figure out ways that I can communicate those beautiful truths in, in a way that, that resonates with, with people's hearts. Yeah, and, and I just want to underline what, what Graham is saying of this honor-shame culture that we're having to engage with because um, Sean McDowell, he shares some of his story of going through deconstruction in this book, Set Adrift. And for his dad is Josh McDowell, who, if you don't know who he is, he is a, you know, worldwide apologist. He wrote, you know, 
evidence that demands a, a verdict more than a carpenter. I mean, he's globally renowned. And so it, Sean goes into sharing of just like, you can imagine the horror that I was having to face as I'm having to be honest with my dad that I'm having doubts about Christianity. And, and for Sean, it wasn't a conversation he was afraid of based on a true-false conversation. It was an honor-shame motivation that was propelling this, this dread to have a conversation with his dad. And so I just I want to read an excerpt from the book when he, when he talks about this conversation he has with his dad. He said, how would he react to me deconstructing the faith he so deeply cherished and had been publicly defending for decades? As we sat in a small cafe in the mountains of Breckenridge, Colorado, I told my dad about my doubts. His response took me by surprise. I think it's great that you want to find truth, he said. It's wise not to accept things just because you were told them. You need to find out for yourself if you think Christianity is true. You know that your mom and I love you regardless of what you conclude. Seek after truth and take to heart the things your mom and I have taught you. And let me know if I can help along the way. That is exactly what I needed to hear. He assured me of his love and he showed confidence, not fear, as I began deconstructing my faith. That's good. So I, I think it's it's not saying and we it's it's either we do is it true or false conversations or honorable or shameful? No, it's like the gospel is true and honorable and beautiful. But maybe in this current cultural climate, we start with a, hey, compassionate, empathetic lens toward that makes sense. If you felt shamed when you went to your youth group leader and they publicly shamed you in front of the youth group of how they were, you were struggling with doubt or whatever, um, no, that makes sense. Can we have more conversations about that? Can this not be the, the, the finishing touch to this conversation, but can we, can we actually engage uh, further? And so it helps us walk with people along the way. Now, we try to think through, like, okay, if, if meeting a tension point and either denying that exi it exists, kind of like head in the sand maybe is one, one miss, then the other is, is just blow the whole thing up because this one discrepancy between this gospel and that gospel, it must all be a sham, I'm out. If those are the misses, we try to boil down, like, what are some key themes that might exist in both of those misses? Even though the destinations themselves look vastly different, what might be some, some themes and why people miss? Yeah, so we came up with a couple. This is what Graham and I pondered at, you know, Bergie's for a while. Um, I think one of the reasons why people miss, whether, like Graham said, whether it's leading you to, toward denial or destruction, one of, one of the reasons why people miss, I, I think, we think, is a lack of honesty with yourself and with God. And, and I think that as, I, as we were talking about this and fleshing it out, <clears throat> you know, the Bible doesn't give us clear-cut answers as to why there is tragedy, right? Nor, nor does it teach us to have passive resignation that, well, this is just the way the world is, and so nothing will ever be better, right? Like, it's neither of those. Um, it, what the Bible actually teaches us to do is to grapple with reality, right? To, to wrestle with God, to cry out to God, to be honest, both with ourselves and with him. And, and I think that in the Christian world, I mean, this process of being honest with ourselves, being honest with God is lament. And, and I think that if we're ironically being honest with ourselves, I, I think as Christians, we don't like lament. I think lament actually makes us feel really uncomfortable um, because we're afraid, like, well, what if lament 
means that I'm doubting God? What if, what if lament means that I'm accusing God of it? Like, what if my lament is misconstrued in such a way where my, my honesty is actually being interpreted as something totally different? And, and I think if, if we were to think about, well, what actually is lament, what we realize is that lament is just acknowledging reality and going to God about it right? It's, it's saying these things are broken and they're not the way that they ought to be. And God, surely, surely you see this too. And surely this hurts you too, right? Like that's like, at its very core, what lament is. It's not a cry of unbelief. Um, it actually takes a lot of faith to lament, to go to the God um, of the universe, of, of heaven and earth, and to say, God, I, I trust you. I'm moving towards you. And I don't know how to process this tragedy that I'm facing in my life. Um, I think in the same way that we're encouraged by Jude to be merciful to those who doubt, I think we also need to remember that we're called to mourn with those who mourn, right? And and when I think about, you know, just like an, ex, like an explicit example of someone who is trying to be honest with themselves, trying to be honest with God and how people, how community responded, Job immediately comes to mind. Job is this example of a man who is godly, who has favor with God, who faces extreme, profound, inexplicable tragedy in his life. He suffers excruciating loss. And, and we see that the whole time he is crying out to God, asking like, what is going on? And, and I want to make sure that I highlight the thing that Job's four friends did right. The, the thing that Job's friends did right was that they showed up. They showed up for the friend who had inexplicable tragedy and profound suffering and loss in his life. The problem was that his friends missed when they opened their mouths and tried to remove this opportunity where Job was lamenting and instead tried to fill in with these assumptions of what might be going on in Job's life, right? Um, you know, Eliphaz, based, I'm, I'm totally summarizing, Eliphaz told him to suck it up and stop moaning, right? Others have been through worse. Um, Bildad said that Job's dead children got what they deserved, right? They were sinners anyway, Job. I mean, that's what happens to sinners. Zophar said that he should have been more thankful that God didn't punish him with more. Elihu told him, Job, what's God trying to teach you? Surely there's something wrong, right? I mean, we, there's this like resistance to lament, to in faith cry out to God and say, God, this is broken and I don't know how to fix it and I don't know what to do. And, and so we, we even see just how our natural response is when people are actually lamenting, we feel really uncomfortable with that because we want an explanation. We want some proverbial explanation as to why these things are happening. Um, the, the temptation and the allure, when, we, um, when we're facing this, when we're being you know, hounded by even people who have good godly intentions, um, is this, I need to understand in order to believe. I need to know why this happened so that I can continue believing. That, I mean, that was really what Job's friends were enticing and alluring him to, down this path of destruction of, if I don't have an explanation for this suffering, I can't trust God at all. I mean, think about what Job's wife said. Job, just curse God and die. I mean, she is just saying, 
come on, <laughs> you know? And, and so I just, I think it's, again, it is worth saying this a second time of you don't destroy your faith by asking questions. You don't destroy your faith by lamenting. You don't destroy your faith by acknowledging what isn't right and how the world like isn't the way that it's supposed to be. That's not how, that's not how you destroy your faith by wrestling through these tensions, by lamenting them with God. What happens is what happens after that, right? is in this wrestling, in this tension, in this crisis point, do you begin to examine and revise and accommodate and begin asking questions like, well, how can bad things happen to good people and why would God allow that? How is God good if there's so much injustice in the world, right? Demanding understanding in order to continue believing. Like that's when we begin dancing with this destructive path as, as we're being honest with God. So there's things that are in bounds as we lament, and then there's, there's opportunities that we need to be mindful of to say, I, I'm not going to understand everything. The Lord can give. The Lord can take. Blessed be the name of the Lord, right? Job didn't have to understand in order to believe. He could trust God and say, this is profoundly and inexplicably, inexplicably painful. Those two tensions reconciled together. And so if, if it's lack of, of honesty with self and God, the next reason might be lack of honesty with others. Sean McDowell says it this way, that people don't leave the faith primarily because of doubt, but because of unexpressed doubt. Unexpressed doubt. And what we see now is, is oftentimes this process of deconstruction, maybe more so that leads toward the destruction pathway, is you tell no one and then you tell everyone. And you're celebrated Be because of uh, social media being used as a as an awesome platform for many things. But you can leverage social media to platform your deconstruction process, and you'll get likes, and you'll get comments, and you'll get DMs. And man, I'm so proud of you. you yes, you you uh, you did what you needed to do. Great work. There's it's celebration due to the rise of this social media. You think about. I mean, there's even uh, pastors like there's a. a well-known pastor who deconstructed on a very public stage uh, in social media and then created a course on how you deconstruct to, to help other people to, to try to uh, wrestle through this process or whatever. And a helpful letter of like what it looks like, what is the, what's the level of honesty that you need to, to be and ha that you need to have and be with, with your a community who's inside of your life. I think a helpful framework for that is in the the letter of Hebrews, the New Testament letter of Hebrews. Hebrews is a first century letter written to a 21st century deconstructionist, we could say. Um, the entire book of Hebrews is the this church that's been around the block. It's, it's, later, it's a later written New Testament letter. And it's written during the, the time of, of Christianity when Emperor Nero was just picking Christians off, you know, uh, doing heinously terrible things to martyr Christians. And Christians were backed into this corner of like, dude, okay, Jesus said he was coming back. I'm back yet? And I'm watching my friend, you know, lit on fire over there because he, you know, he, he said Jesus is Lord instead of Caesar is Lord. And, and they're coming to my doorstep next. And so I've got in their mind, two options. I can either go back to the Judaism that fits neatly under this, you know, under this emperor, Emperor Nero, or I can reject Jesus in total. And the whole book of Hebrews is saying, actually, 
Not the, not the denial way. You know, Judaism, we'll, we'll feel that. Not the forget Jesus way. The, the harder, the narrow path, the entire plead of Hebrews is saying, do not give up. Don't let go. Endure to the very end. And, and how the letter is written with the context of community assumed in these, these believers who are trying not to, to give up their faith, uh, I see it most clearly in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 that this is a communal project. The author says, watch out brothers and sisters so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. For we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So the author of Hebrews, writing to a church on the brink of deconstruction, is is saying this is a community project. You've got to be honest with each other so that sin's sin's quiet, conniving deceitfulness doesn't wear your conscience from day to day to day to day, that you end up saying, you know what, Judaism, that's kind of like the same thing. All right, I'll... I'll go to this branch of Christianity. Or, you know what, that's, I, I don't know if I'm about this because if I was about this, then Nero would actually be, he, he would be fine with it kind of thing. The author of Hebrews is saying, no, this is a communal project. And maybe a third thing that just came to my mind as we're talking about this, like maybe some, some things that, why people miss or maybe what, what they have in common is oftentimes the fruits of each of these pathways are anything but the fruits of the Spirit. If you look at a person who embodies maybe denial, or maybe you have, or you, or, or you know your drift, uh, oftentimes it, it might be shame or fear, right? Whoa, I'll just keep using the genealogy example. This genealogy is different than that genealogy. Blind, it's like the scarcity mindset. I have to make sure I protect my view of God because if I don't, that's really gonna wreck what I think to be true about God. I can't, I can't do that. It's like this fear and scarcity. Then if you go on the other side, oftentimes what embodies maybe a person who moves towards destruction is bitter, vitriol, anger. That there, there has been an actual deep wound that was never healed. That the response is to say, I curse that upbringing that did this to me. And when you sit down with the stories and, you, and these people start to have names and faces, you... You're not going to respond, well, just, you know, get over it. It's like, dang, when you sit with these people, man, that, that makes sense. But it's an unhealed wound that, that might blind somebody, somebody to actually be able to look at the, the objective propositional truths of the gospel and see them as beautiful. And so it can be anger and, and resentment that fuels the, de- the destructionist. But reconstruction holds your hands open and says, Jesus is king, and if he means what he says, then He's not going to let anybody lost out of, out of the Father's hands, okay? So that's, I'm a little scared right now because I don't know what I'm feeling here, but, I, but Jesus, let me take your hand and walk forward towards the pain. Let me walk forward towards the thing that's confusing me. And out of that place comes love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Out of that place comes fruits of the Spirit. And you got somebody who's worn, beaten, battered. That's not an easy path. Jesus says it's the narrow road. But it's the road that leads to life. 
not to bitterness, not to, not to shame or fear as being the driver, but, but love of God and love of neighbor. Yeah. And and I think too, like, as we're talking about this, like where, where are we prone to drift? I I think all of us, again, go back to what we talked about in the beginning, Hebrews 2, 1, pay careful attention so that you do not drift away, right? Like we're, we are so enticed, you know, based on personality, based on culture, based on upbringing, based on fill in the blank of, of the ways that we can drift off of this narrow road. So pay careful attention so that you don't drift away. If you, if you're noticing even just tonight, it's like, man, I I drift this way. I, I think even just the awareness can make yourself consider, okay, where, where might that be playing itself out in my life? Um, so I, I think that's really good. Okay, so if, that, if those are some of the, maybe the different destinations, the, the misses, destruction and denial, we want to talk about the, the narrow road, the pathway forward towards reconstruction. And to do so, I think it's helpful to maybe even keep our tool here to say, how do we, we, we are people who are obviously influenced by this. So we're not objective, like we're not influenced by expressive individualism or the cult, shifts in the culture. Um, so it, it doesn't work totally, but we try, I try to think through like, what is a, um, how can we as Christians think through, no matter how influenced you are by this or what our current, you know, culture might, the current cultural milieu might be, what are our guiding principles? And so time would be any time, transcendent time, whatever, however you want to put it. The tool for the Christian, so the tool is going to be absolute truth or the Bible. And then the attitude is realistic hope. So we use scripture, by the way, that book over there called Biblical Critical Theory is the, the, it's kind of a play on words that Christopher Watkin is using to say, if theory is, is a tool through which you, it's a lens through which you view the world, what Christopher Watkin, Watkin is, is saying is, what if the Bible became the tool through which we evaluated every single event, past, present, and future? What sort of vision does the Bible leave us with when we use it as the tool to critique and engage with cultural moments, pain, whatever. And so it's, it's this sort of biblical critical theory model that says realistic hope, not it, it views life with life, humanity, sin with eyes wide open, but it does not have the um, sledgehammer sort of deconstructionist tool that a Dune worldview would have where it's like, well, we're kind of all screwed and good luck. No, but, but the Bible says this is headed towards a place. Jesus has actually shown up. He has, has actually redeemed, and, and this is moving towards redemption. So how do we both view life and reality as, a, as, you know, clearly and see it as clearly as we can while holding out to hope? So that's a, a little bit of that before you jump into the final pathway. Yeah, so this final pathway of... of what reconstruction looks like. How, how is it that we can engage in deconstruction in a way that doesn't lead toward destruction, doesn't lead to denial, but actually leads toward a, a robust reconstructed faith. And, and I actually, I want to use this, this tool of absolute truth scripture to show you like, what does it look like when Jesus actually does this, when he deconstructs cultural ideologies and worldly critiques of, you know, presuppositions and expectations. Um, what does it look like for him to deconstruct these things and reconstruct them in a way that, that actually is more true and accurate to truth? Um, and, and I want to 
just make a side observation to say that oftentimes the the conversations that we see, the moments in scripture in the New Testament when we see Jesus having these deconstruction conversations to reconstruct toward a truer truth, um, it's often with church people. I just want to make that note that it's often with church people that Jesus is having to deconstruct from cultural norms, ideologies, um, you know, old religious expectations in reconstructing something to be more healthy and true. So here's a couple, here's a couple things that we notice from Jesus as he, as he models the way for this path toward reconstruction. One thing, Graham said this earlier, I want to say it again because it's so important. Primarily, Jesus uses scripture as the basis for critiquing the world. He doesn't use, even, even if it's the church world, even if it's the religious world, what Jesus uses is scripture to critique the world. He doesn't use the world, even if it's the religious or the church world, to critique scripture. Okay, Graham said that earlier, but I just want you to see in the ways in which this plays out practically in, in the conversations that Jesus has as he helps people deconstruct and reconstruct. Um, Jesus constantly, he is constantly doing this like reformative deconstruction, right? This reconstruction of shedding these non-essentials that people were adding on to religious ways and practices. And he was preserving and even fulfilling the things that were essential, right? He's taking the religious things apart and he's shedding and tossing the extraneous and the erroneous things that had been added on and accumulated over the years to put back together the, the thing that was essential and true in, in a more beautiful way, right? Um, think about this. Here's a couple examples. Mark chapter 2, Jesus deconstructs and then reconstructs a proper view of fasting and Sabbath. Matthew 21, Jesus deconstructs and reconstructs the purposes of the temple. Matthew 5, I, I love this one. Matthew 5, Jesus deconstructs and reconstructs the purpose of the law. Notice like over and over again, the repeated phrase in Matthew 5 is, you have heard it said, but I say to you. That is deconstruction to reconstruct. You've heard that this is what murder is, but I say to you that it's even when you think about it, right? Like Jesus is re reconstructing our, our view and framework of sin in, in such a way that it's actually more robust than what we once thought. What about Matthew 23? Jesus deconstructs and reconstructs true righteousness, right? It's not this external appearance that these Pharisees have, but it's actually what is coming out of the heart. It's what's living inside. He deconstructs what we're defining and seeing as righteousness to create, to reconstruct a true and accurate picture of righteousness. Even consider the word repentance. Like when Jesus says, you know, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel, um, repentance is more than just admitting or confessing sin. That the word for repentance is metanoia, and and that literally means to change one's mind. What is required in order for you to change your mind? It requires a deconstruction of one view and to reconstruct with another view that is in more alignment with what is true. So when we are repenting from our sin, we are deconstructing and saying, this is the path that leads to life and flourishing and, and, and goodness. And we're changing our minds and reconstructing it to say, actually, there is a better way that Jesus has come that is a, a better way that life can be found to the fullest in him, right? 
This word repentance can suggests this process of reconstruction. Think about 2 Corinthians 10.5. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says this, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That word demolish is deconstruct. We deconstruct arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Do you see that? We're using scripture to critique the arguments, the pretenses that are setting themselves up. That, that word pretension, maybe uh, your translation says stronghold or warped philosophies. Like it's all of these anti-gospel ideologies, right? These, these anti-truths that are presented to us. And we are deconstructing them by using the truths of Scripture to say, what is it that it is enticing me toward? And what is it that Scripture says is true? So... The question then becomes, like, if you're following, it's like, okay, Jesus deconstructed to reconstruct. Like, I'm seeing that this actually maybe isn't a, a dangerous or bad thing. Um, maybe it's even an invitation to say that there might be some deconstruction that needs to take place in, in all of our Christian beliefs and, and practice. But then the next question is to ask, what should I deconstruct? How did Jesus know that this needed to be deconstructed to reconstruct, but not this. Like, how do you know what you can deconstruct in order to rebuild and what you can't? So I want to use this image of these three concentric circles to, to kind of show this point of what can we deconstruct and rebuild, reconstruct, and what can't we touch, right? Remember deconstructing, it's like it's, you're removing, you're holding on to that which is precious and good and true and right, and then you're kind of removing and shedding and, and getting away all of the things that are unnecessary, okay? So here's, here's what, we, what we can do when we deconstruct. First one, the center is dogma. What is dogma? Dogma is the essential beliefs of the orthodox Christian faith, okay? And if you're wondering like, well, what are those? It's the creeds, so think the Nicene Creed, think the Apostles' Creed, think Athanasian Creed. Like these are, these are the summary statements of what Christians have always believed for all times. When Jude 1 talks about the faith delivered once for all to the saints, the creeds are these summary statements of dogma, what Christians always and will always continue to believe is true about Christian life and practice. Dogma. So when, when we think about dogma and when we think about deconstruction, I, I want you to have, you know, I don't know if any of you guys watch HGTV like I do, but I love HGTV. I love a good home reno. And what I've noticed, I don't know if you've noticed this too, but there are times in houses where, you know, Joanna Gaines has these amazing floor plan ideas for this like open concept living room. And then all of a sudden during demo day, Chip is like, hey, this isn't going to work because this pole right here in the middle of the living room is a load-bearing wall. We can't knock it down because if we do, we're going to have a bigger problem called the house caved in, right? And so Joanna Gaines's response in that moment is, I guess I have to rework the floor plan, right? That's what dogma is like. Dogma are the load-bearing walls of the Christian faith that if you touch them, the house will collapse. If you deviate from them, you are not a Christian, like bluntly. 
And so when we think about, well, what can I deconstruct? What can't I reconstruct? We aren't talking about dogma. We aren't talking about the faith once delivered for all the saints that Christians have always believed for all times. Those are load-bearing walls that have tremendous consequences, destruction, not deconstruction, but destruction if we touch them. Remember that, like, that phrase, theological accommodations. Like, you cannot rework a floor plan and remove load-bearing wall. Like, you have to find another way to make the house beautiful. But that wall has to stay. And you know what? Every single time at the end of 30 minutes, Joanna Gaines finds a way to make that column beautiful. You know? It's like, man, I'm actually really glad it's there. So that's how we, when we are deconstructing, we cannot touch dogma. That is the baby that we are holding that is precious. We cannot, we must be so careful, so vigilant vigilant to protect it, to hold it, to preserve it, okay? So what can we touch? Next circle, doctrine. Doctrine are beliefs that are derived from dogma, okay? So for example, if doctrine or if dogma is things like the triune nature of God or humanity, deity, resurrection of Jesus or salvation by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, like if those are examples of dogma, things that Christians have always believed, doctrine would be things like the second coming of Christ. Not if it is like if Christ will return, that would be dogma, but how? How will Christ return when he comes back? Will it be with a rapture? Will it be with a thousand years? Will it not be with a thousand years? Like, there's a lot of doctrine that is derived from the, from the dogma that Christ will bodily and visibly return, right? And, and when you think about it, like, what, what is doctrine? It, it's really how we got all of the denominations that we have, Right? Different denominations have certain convictions about the like implications that are derived from this dogma. You, you get different doctrine on women and men in the church, baptism, Lord's Supper, like all of these things that we derive as beliefs from dogma, doctrine, okay? Doc, notice that doctrine is close to dogma, so we want to be careful Right? We want to be very conscientious and careful as we're deconstructing doctrine, not to get close, not to touch the load-bearing walls of dogma, but there is work that we can do in reconstruction. You can change your views and decide to be a post-millennialist if you come to feel like, man, there's some reasonable evidence and I feel really compelled for that. Guess what? Christ is still returning, but now you just have a different view on how. Sounds great to me. Does that make sense? Like, so we're not touching the load-bearing wall, but we're deconstructing. We're re- you know what? I was always taught that it was this way, but maybe, oh, there's other views out there. I want to explore them. I want to I have faith that's seeking to understand. I want to learn more. I want to process this with other people, with other believers and community. So doctrine, up for, up for deconstruction and reconstruction. Tread carefully. Notice how close it is to dogma, but there's a lot of room inside of it. There's a lot of denominations that we are all, we are all going to be in heaven. So I think even just having that picture alone of saying, if there's a lot of denominations, there's a lot of room inside of doctrine, right? The, this outer circle is opinions. Opinions are even more broad than doctrine, right? Opinions have even more room for deconstruction and reconstruction, right? Um, I, I think a good example of this is like the age of the earth. 
You know, like, was it a literal seven days? Was it a metaphorical seven days? Like, those are a lot of opinions that people have when we read the Genesis creation account. We're not denying that God is the creator of the heavens and the earth when we're having the conversations of did God create in a literal seven days or did he create in a metaphorical seven days? So notice that we're protecting the dogma, God is the creator of all things, while we're deconstructing and reconstructing our opinions on how might he have done that process, right? So I think this is a really helpful tool as we think about what can I reconstruct, what can I not deconstruct? Um, there's a handout maybe you grabbed as you walked in that it, it's called theological triage. It's this in a different way. So if this isn't helpful, use that as an example. Basically, everything that is above that tippy top triangle, the colored section, that would be the equivalent of dogma, right? The untouchable, the load-bearing walls. Everything below that in the second and third kind of larger, wider triangles, that, that is open and available for you as a Christian, faith-seeking understanding in community, honest with yourself, honest with God, to, to wrestle through and grapple with. What, what might I need to honor from where I've come from and leave behind as I, I have a more robust and strengthened faith of what it looks like to follow Jesus? And now we wanted to look at like, okay, what are some specific examples that when we look in scripture, are stories of Jesus engaging with different people who might have walked through a process of this? First being Nicodemus. Yeah, so I, I love the story of Nicodemus. Nicodemus, we see his story in John chapter 3, um, verses 1 through 9, and I want to read it as we kind of look at this story of someone who was invited to deconstruct in order to reconstruct. Someone that Jesus invited to walk with him on this narrow road, okay? Also notice he is a Pharisee leader. He's a church leader. He's a church guy, okay? Verse 1, now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Verse 9, how can this be? Nicodemus asked. Okay, so a couple of observations from this story. One, do you hear the crisis point that Nicodemus is facing? What do you mean you have to be born again? Like, like, do you, like his responses to Jesus, like you're, you're, notice this tension point of how is this possible, Jesus? This, this is the tension point that Nicodemus is asked and in, in facing, Right? Um, and really what Jesus is inviting him to think through is, hey, I actually want you to rethink what you believe about God and about salvation. 
Like you, as this teacher of the law, have thought that reaching God and, and being made right in his, sight, in his sight is one way. And I want to invite you to a different way that is true and better with how it is that a person is saved. Right? That's the invitation that Jesus gives to Nicodemus. Not by works of the law, but by being born of the Spirit, by grace, through faith, in, in him. Like, can you imagine this scene? Nicodemus is looking at Jesus, having this conversation with him. And, and it's interesting. I like how the chosen um, taps into this scene um, with Nicodemus. They, they have this scene of Nicodemus and his wife in season one. And, and I think it, it's an interesting scene that I think colors in a lot of this scene that we see in scripture. Um, this scene between Nicodemus and his wife, it, go, it goes like this. His wife is, you know, saying, you're the teacher of the law. You don't have questions. You have answers. You have authority. You bring clarity. You don't bring confusion. And, and Nicodemus is, you know, they're by a mirror, and Nicodemus is inviting his wife to come over and say, tell me what you see in the mirror. And, and his wife is like, well, it's broken and it's blurry. I can't really see anything at all. And listen to what Nicodemus says to her. Sometimes I wonder if what we can know of Adonai and the law is just as blurred. What if we aren't seeing the whole picture? What if it's more beautiful and more strange than we can ever imagine? And, and so something that I think like resonates with that statement is this, this invitation that deconstructing in order to reconstruct presents to us. Like I think at the very bottom of it, what God is inviting us to is to, is to understand the implications of what it means to be finite, comprehending the infinite, right? Like at the end of the day, our crisis points, our tension points are seen from the vantage point of the finite. And we are going to a God who is infinite, who is incomprehensible, who, who became like us, but is fundamentally not like us. And, and we're trying to grapple with a four-dimensional realm as three-dimensional people, right? And, and so I think that you know, when we think about this conversation that we see with Nicodemus and Jesus, really at the bottom of it, Jesus is challenging Nicodemus's small-minded paradigm of what, what salvation actually is and how it is to be accomplished and achieved. And he's challenging Nicodemus of broadening his picture to say, what if it has nothing to do with everything that you've built your entire life on? What if it has everything to do with the person and work of the person sitting across the table from you, Nicodemus, right? Like this challenge of the infinite to the finite saying, what if it's bigger? What if it's more beautiful? What if it's more glorious than you think or imagine? And, and I just, I, I wish that John would have finished the story with Nicodemus. I get mad sometimes at the authors of the Bible because they don't finish really critical points. It's like, does John have ADD and just forgot, you know? But, but I just, I wonder what that was like. Like where, what happened to Nicodemus after that night? No, notice that he went at night. Notice this like avoiding, like this fear of what will people think of me? I'm the church leader. I'm not supposed to have questions. I'm supposed to have answers. Like he came to Jesus alone. And so I just, I wonder what began to swirl inside of Nicodemus as Jesus was challenging him. It's actually nothing like what you think. The law actually was doing nothing that you thought it was going to do. 
and, and I am actually the answer and the solution. Jesus was inviting Nicodemus on this journey of reconstruction, reconstruction, not to abandon his faith, but to see it more clearly for what it was. That's what we see in Nicodemus' story. In another, in the same gospel, gospel of John chapter 20, uh, Jesus has another compassionate engagement with Thomas. Thomas is known throughout history as doubting Thomas. And when you look at Jesus's engagement with Thomas, the two things that stick out to me are number one, Jesus treats Thomas no differently. Uh, the, the disciples who were able to be in the room when Jesus showed himself the first time and got to, you know, articulating, this is what we saw, this is what we felt, whatever. Um, Jesus shows up again and compassionately approaches Thomas and says, hey, feel my, uh, feel my hands, feel my side. And then also, Jesus honors Thomas's request for evidence. The things that Thomas desired, Jesus does uh, engage with. And um, what, I shared this at Salt Company a couple weeks back, but I'm not saying Jesus is going to physically show up to you and say, touch my you know, hands in my side. But when you seriously engage with the propositional truths about the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth, you will, like, you will encounter Jesus. You will, uh, bare minimum, be challenged to say, what do I think about this historical man that lived <laughs> and what he said about himself and how, what are the conclusions that, that that puts in my court to draw from him? Um, so Jesus's engagement with Thomas is compassionate and kind. And A.J. Swoboda says, we can all thank God that Doubting Thomas didn't have his doubt crisis in a fundamentalist conservative church. They would have told him he didn't believe anymore, that he was doomed to destruction. And so I think it's like a, it's a good reminder of like, hey, if we're Thomas, we need space to, to be honest about what's, what's going on in our hearts. But if maybe we have never struggled with doubt, we've got to create space at the table for Thomas's, for the conversation and, and to open that up. Now, we want to start to close down here because we got 10 minutes left. And, and maybe the, the question that we're going to start to close with is like, what, what do I do if I'm here? Like if you're in this room right now and you are uh, full-blown walking towards one of, one of these paths um, and, and maybe particularly towards the, the destruction path, what, what do you do when you, when you meet a tension point? And just as a personal story, I'll, I'll kind of share a little bit of my story. I remember the, I, I was never a person who really dealt with doubt um, at any point and, until I was in ministry. <laughs> I was a youth pastor, and I remember writing a sermon, and just this thought came to my mind of like, do I believe this? Is the freakiest thing ever. Because I was like, because I mean, when you're tasked to do a job, to stand up on stage and try to compel people how good Jesus is and how you should follow the life that he has for you and this is what he says. And it's like when you're writing a sermon that you're getting ready to preach 24 hours later and you're like, what do I think about this? It's like, that's a costly thought. Like it, practically, that's a costly thought when, you're, when your uh, profession connects with your belief so intimately, which is why if you've ever wondered how do pastors go from following Jesus, you know, on a public platform for 40 years, and then they're like, I'm an atheist. They denied for 39 of those years, and they destroy in year 40. That's Satan's pathway to, to wreck people. And so I was, like, kind of thrown off, like, okay, tension point. It wasn't even, I, I don't even remember what I was writing, but it just was, like, this thought that was, like, wow, like, I'm really, I'm really in this job, and I'm really trying to get people to, to follow Jesus because I 
well, do I? Like just some some weird self-talk. And I can remember feeling that tension point, that decision point of like, what am I going to do? And so I'm just going to walk you through like this, this, necessi- this isn't necessarily the right thing, but it's just like when you face tension, uh, how can you engage with it? Uh, the first is just be honest with yourself, as we've kind of already talked about. Um, this is the first step forward and away from denial. And I think a helpful thing to note is like, it's not God's design to doubt. He, he, don't misunderstand us in having a crash course called Reconstructing a Deconstructed Faith. We don't want to make it sound like doubt is awesome and a part of the design. No, it's scary. It is, you're, it's um, unnerving. You, you're, you're walking, thinking a certain thing, and then boom, you, you land on this tension or this suffering or this thing, this doctrine in the Bible that you struggle to agree with. Like, it is unnerving. And so it, is, it was never God's design for Adam and Eve to doubt him. That is, the, that is the task of the serpent who says, wait, did God really say don't eat from any tree in the Garden of Eden, which is not what God said at all? Did God really say that? that, that so it's not a part of God's design. It's a part of the fall, but the, the tension point isn't inherently sinful. It's what we do with that, right? And so it takes the moment to say, okay, that's, I don't know why. I've literally never thought that. When I think about the truth of the gospel, I'm like, yeah, that, that is what I believe, but, I, but trying to see it as like, okay, I'm going to be honest with myself, and number two, I'm going to be honest with God. Lord, maybe you're inviting me. This is kind of scary. I don't feel prepared for this. Maybe you're inviting me into deeper fellowship with you, and so I'm going to choose against maybe my feelings of doubt to walk forward in faith, trusting you're going to meet me wherever this thing leads, to a clear picture of you based upon the orthodox faith of, of the scriptures, like I'm, I'm going to walk forward in faith. And I've heard somebody say like um, some of this process can be weaning you off of the emotionalism of your faith. Like if say that again. It, that, that doubt is, can be weaning you off the emotionalism of your faith. That when you are, when you look at, I mean, even some of you guys, if we were to sit down and, and have conversations, the immense suffering and pain that you have walked through potentially. I don't know everybody's story, but for somebody to come out on the other side of that and be like, I'm still rocking with Jesus. It's like, dang, you've been to a place. You have been to a place with King Jesus that, that took some batters and bruises. And so it's saying, I want to be honest with myself. I want to be honest with God. I want to invite him into that dark night of the soul to wean me off of maybe the, like I got to feel everything at level 10 to know that I'm a Christian. I'm sure Abraham had, he had no clue of like, go to the land I will show you. (laughs) Where is that? I don't know. Walk in the discomfort desert season that God's inviting you into. So I think doubt sometimes uh, is a lot scarier on the front end and you can be honest with, honest with yourself, honest with God and just say, I'm going to take the next step of faith. God, I'm inviting you in faith in the dark night of the soul and I can't even see or know my bearings, but I know you're going to meet me. Number, th- so honest with yourself. Honest can I with say God. something really quick? Yeah. So I, I just want to point out like a couple things that Satan will do at this point that Graham is referencing, but I just want to say it explicitly. One, Satan will make you feel your feelings, right? So feelings become the determining factor of what is true. But the other thing is, I mean, notice the the lie in the garden. Like you can't, like really did God say that? It's like he's he's both confusing, but speaking half truths, right? Like the most compelling lies are half true. 
And so I think oftentimes, like when we're faced with these questions, there, there probably is like some measure of truth in them. It's just the fact that a half truth isn't a whole truth and that makes it a lie. And so I think it takes tremendous discernment, and I think Graham's about to say inviting people in. It takes tremendous discernment, and sometimes we can't do that process. We have to invite other people in to say, what here is true? What, what here is right? What here is good? And what, what, is, what actually isn't good and true? So keep going. Yes, and that's the, the third thing is be honest with community. So it's like, okay, I'm going to tell my wife, Jess, I'm, I'm going to tell my boss and pastor, Nate Logan, Dude, I have I can't even like pinpoint what this is or like there's no particular when I think about the doctrines the, the dogma and doctrines I'm like nah, I, th- I think that but there's just something in me that's like a dark blob that I don't want to leave there so Nate Logan here here it is on the table you know um, and that's like vulnerable because that that again could be a costly person who is yes a pastor to me but it was my boss at the time but I'm like I love Jesus. Like I, I, I love and believe in Jesus so much that I'm not going to allow these feelings of doubt and fear of, oh my goodness, what is Nate, my boss, going to think of me if I share this? I'm just going to be like, hey, as a pastor, here's a blob. I don't even know how to make sense of it, but I want to invite you into it so you can ask some follow-up questions and you can help me uh, think through this. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with God. Be honest with community. Uh, be open to change. We've talked a little bit about this, but moving forward in honesty and humility, anchored in Scripture. Maybe you walk out a post-millennial and you were a pre-millennial, or maybe you walk out and you believe in the charismatic gifts of the Spirit in a way that you didn't before, or whatever it might be, whatever it might be the positional change, uh, dogma not changing, keeping your hands open to say, God, is there, is there a part of you that I'm... I'm not seeing clearly in scripture and you want to challenge that. And then number five, be on guard. Because I think like in the process, the the visual that came to my mind when I got to the end of it, basically what I, what I discovered is like, I'm not actually not doubting any particular doctrine. I just, as a person, tend towards fear. So when you start thinking about some of those difficult doctrines of the Christian faith, it's like, I want people to like me. <laughs> that That is a, a drift towards my heart. And so, to stand on any sort of stage, be it in front of two people or a hundred people or whatever, and to say the, some of the hard things that Jesus says about what it means to follow him and what you got to give up and picking up your cross and following him, like my, my heart drifts towards, feel and so, uh, drifts towards fear. And so what I was able to kind of pinpoint is like, these are feelings of doubt anchored in fear. So there's no particular doctrine that was my story at least. And so I think like the, the visual comes to my mind of, of the Wizard of Oz, where the great and powerful Oz is like this, oh my goodness, like, <gasps> but then you walk behind, it's like just an old dude, old crusty dude, you know, just sitting behind this, this uh, thing and, and playing a bigger show than, than he was actually. And so I think like the, the devil prowls around like a lion. He is not a lion. There's only one lion. Lion of the tribe of Judah, right? I've heard a pastor say that. It's like, no, that's true. The, the devil, yes, is deceptive. He's conniving. He uses new tools. But at the end of the day, when you peek behind the curtain of the great almighty Oz, you're like, oh, that was just really unnerving and alarming. But actually, when I wrestle through the gospel, the truths of the gospel, or whatever, whatever it might be, you know what? Jesus has actually invited me into closer and better fellowship with him. And so uh, a phrase that I've used is like, create and recite a catechism for doubt, Catechism is, is a way in which the church instructed young believers to say, these are the tenets of the Christian faith. 
And so for mine, it was like, okay, do I believe God? Do I believe in a transcendent God who created this world? Yes. Do I believe Jesus was a real human? Even if you look at sources outside of the Bible, extra biblical sources, Jesus of Nazareth was a real human person. Okay. Do I believe Jesus, that the best way to get access to understanding who Jesus was are in the four biographies of, of the scriptures? Yes. Not only do I believe that, but there are atheist agnostic scholars who also would believe that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the best places to get the clearest picture of Jesus. Okay, I believe that. Do I believe Jesus was who he said he was in those four gospels? Yes, I do. What, you know, as I read those, do I believe the, what the four gospels teach that Jesus teaches about these difficult topics such as sexuality, su- such as hell, such as justice, such as judgmentalism, whatever might be the thing that, that I could drift towards fear of, man, that's a hard thing for our current cultural moment to, to believe. It's like, Dude, I've walked down the path, and as even though my feelings might scream, dis, you know, deny to destroy, it's like, you know what? I'm going to keep rocking. I'm going to keep taking that next step. And this anchors you in truth while identifying some of the sources of your doubt so you know what you're actually you know, wrestling against. That's five things if you're in it, four things if you know someone in it, and then we'll close up. We're, we're at 801 right now. Be honest uh, with yourself. Again, this is the same thing if you're walking with somebody. Uh, grieve what's not and embrace what is. Some of the hardest, especially maybe you parents who are in here and you've got kids who you uh, gave your lives to, to, for, for them to follow Jesus and they have walked away from Jesus. Um, as a parent, if your kid has walked away from the faith, one, it's okay to just grieve that and to, to say, God, my heart is really, really broken from what I, what I thought was gonna be true of our family and what isn't in this kid. But if they've walked away from the faith, uh, don't hold a decision that they might have made when they were six over them as like, no, but you are a Christian. As much as you're trying to hold out hope and say, you're still that kid. In some ways that can land on their hearts and their ears as like, you don't really know me. And you actually don't care that, that I have, in my perception, valid reasons to walk away, whatever might be the story. And so it's like, create space. Um, you can grieve what's not, embrace what is, be, be honest with yourself about the person that you love dearly who has maybe walked away from Jesus. Number two, uh, you're responsible to them, not necessarily responsible for them in terms of their spiritual soul. Uh, that's God's job. Uh, in the same sort of note, number three, you can't change their heart, but you can create space for heart change. So look for windows of conversation to say, hey, well, yeah, tell me about that church experience, friend, or hey, tell me about that church experience, daughter or son, of that youth group that we used to go to. Yeah, wow, okay, just create space for for people to share their stories. And don't be threatened by the honesty. Uh, God in how he deals with Job, Jesus in how he deals with Thomas, is not threatened by the honest uh, assertions of of Thomas and, and Job. So be honest with yourself. You're responsible to, not responsible for, you can't change their heart, but you can create space for heart change. And then number four, most important, never stop praying. That's a given. I know everybody in here is like, you don't even need to say that. Here's a picture of hope. The worst king in all of the, the biblical narrative of the kings is King Ahab. There's a literal line that's like, there is no king who is worse than Ahab. And there's a lot of sketchy kings And when you read the, the book of Kings. And basically, God sends a word through Elijah and says, tell uh, Elijah, tell Ahab that because of the terrible, you know, 
child-sacrificing sort of things that he's done, that judgment will come upon his family and he will die. So Elijah goes and tells King Ahab. Ahab rips his clothes, puts sackcloth on his head, falls down, weeps over this word from the Lord. What do we see God do? He's like, hey, Elijah, have you seen Ahab lately? He's humbled himself. So actually go tell him the thing that I said was going to happen is actually not, that, that isn't gonna be his end. There's still gonna be punishment to his family, but that, that he has humbled himself. And that is a microcosm of like the, the King Ahab hearts that maybe are in our head right now of like God would, li- like this person would never follow Jesus. You, you have those people where you're like, it would be a miracle. When you read stories like King Ahab, God delights to pour out mercy on even King Ahab's who poke him with humility and say, as bad as I've been, as much as I've cursed you, I'm gonna humble myself. And God delights to, to pour out mercy. And so the, the, we can't change hearts, but we serve a God who, who even softens and changes and responds to the soft heart of King Ahab's. The longer I follow Jesus, the more that I find that I can walk with both, both confidence and curiosity uh, within the Christian faith as I study the scripture. On this side of heaven, the Apostle Paul says, we see through a mirror dimly, but God in the scriptures has given us enough. John chapter six, Jesus says some hard words about um, his flesh and blood and, and all the people who are like rocking with Jesus as a healer are like, man, yeah, this is sweet. And then Jesus starts talking about his flesh and blood and, and they're like, wait, what, is, <laughs> what does that mean? Okay, you know what? We're, we're not really about that. We're gonna walk away. They met a tension point. They think, I'm out on that. If you want to heal, if you want to feed, that's cool. But I'm, I'm not really rocking with you with the whole like flesh and blood thing. And Jesus turns to his disciples after that moment where many of his disciples, you know, turn back from him, turns to the 12 and he says, you don't want to go away too, do you? And Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. And so it's like they're, they're not denying that, yeah, those are some weird and confusing words, I'm sure, as they're hearing that, like, eat his flesh and drink his blood. Thomas, did you hear that? But they're saying, you know what? There is something about this man, Jesus, that I cannot help but continue to walk and step with him because with him are the words of eternal life. And so the, the opportunity for anybody in the dark night of the soul walking through the decision of am I gonna continue down the path of denial? Am I gonna continue down the path of destruction? It is to confess with me, with you, with all of Christian history, Peter the apostles, with Jesus are the words of eternal life. Where else am I gonna go? That's good. So here's the invitation. The invitation is to embrace gray, right? I think so much that's true of the destruction path and the denial path is this, this forceful black and white picture. And, and really this path of reconstruction we can have with confidence, we can have with curiosity to, to embrace this tension and to welcome gray into the things that we don't quite understand, but we want to seek to understand with our faith. Um, and so maybe as you walked in, you grabbed a rubber band and you were like, why are there rubber bands out by the notes? It was for this moment, this very moment. Um, because when we were thinking about this whole crash course, when we were thinking about this tension point, the, the first thing that I thought, to, I was like, Graham, it's like a rubber band. And, and what I meant by that is rubber bands, they're meant to be stretched. 
They're made to stretch. Now, if you stretch them too much, what happens? They snap. They're destroyed. But if you don't use them, and if you don't stretch them, they're useless. And that's similar, the, the snapping, the stretching to the point of snapping and just the letting them be like this is similar to these two false paths that we have the opportunity to take, but that we see end in denial and end in destruction. And, and yet what this path of reconstruction invites us to is, is just a healthy stretch, like a rubber band. It's meant, it's meant to be stretched. It's made to be stretched. And, and so at the bottom of this, what, what do we want you to hear about this deconstruction to reconstruct, right? Reconstructing a deconstructed faith. We need the capacity for paradox intention. We need the capacity to say, the rubber band's meant to be stretched. Not so much that it snaps, and not at all because I'm afraid to use it, but a paradox of saying, it can handle the tension. It can handle the stretch. It was made for that. Your faith was made for the stretch. Okay? So let me close with this prayer, this doxology from Jude. This is Jude 1, 20 to 25. But you, dear friends, dear friends in this room, you, by building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Thanks for coming tonight, you guys. We just did two hours in 10 minutes of reconstructing a deconstructed faith. You have so much to swallow. You should go home and go to sleep immediately and worry about all of this tomorrow. A couple of things as you make your way out tonight, um, you'll notice on the right side as you walk out, there's a, just a handful of resources. Some of them don't have sleeves because I don't like sleeves, so you'll have to look at the spine to see the title, but it's a variety of different kinds of books that are around this topic of deconstruction, either like head on or like coming at it from the side. So um, if this topic in interests you, if you feel like you're wanting to go a little bit more and explore deeper, these are just a handful of resources that have been really helpful for Graham and me and, and ones that we trust and, and would invite you to read as well. So make sure to take a pictures of those on your way out. But thanks for coming. We will see you guys next month for our next crash course. Bye. <laughs>